Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 145. This episode is with physical performance coach Norbert Banusi. Norbert came on to talk around periodization. So it's a great chat with Norbert. We, co- we covered loads of different aspects, in, including the different types of periodization, which I'm sure many people have studied or utilized before. But we spoke about how to decide which approach to use what influences that decision. We also spoke about how flexible your plan needs to be throughout a season, how long you should plan for as well, whether you're planning just a microcycle or uh, you're planning up to macrocycle level. Um, And then we also spoke about what areas of physical performance can be impacted in terms of football practice and what needs to be worked on away from the pitch as well. So we covered loads in this one around periodization, loads of great stuff from Norbert. Um, so I hope you enjoyed the episode. Just a quick one before we get into the episode. Unfortunately, we've had to cancel our first event of the year at QPR, our first networking event. But on the plus side, we have got some incredible events and speakers to announce very soon. So if you did book a place on the QPR meeting, you will have received a full refund um, you will, should have received an email as well, just explaining um, the refund as well. But if you haven't done so, please reach out, mail at footballfitfed.com. And like I say, keep an eye out because we will be announcing new meetings coming very soon for the rest of 2021. But let's dive into the podcast now with Norbert Banusi. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 145. I'm delighted to be joined today by physical performance coach Norbert Banosi. And that was take two, by the way, and I nailed it on take two. Norbert, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Ben, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. I feel very honoured to be here. Uh, You've had quite a list of renowned speakers on your podcast, so it's it's absolutely privilege and honor to be here thanks no problem at all mate it's great to have you on um we've got some cool stuff to cover today because we're going to focus around periodization um but let's go into your journey so far there might be some people that uh, that know some of the clubs you've been at some of the roles you've had but there might be others that don't so do you want to just take us through your journey in your career so far and also give us where where you're at at the moment yeah uh let's see if you Go back to, I guess, my beginning of career in uh, SNC, sports science, whatever you want to call it these days. Uh, I started within a NCAA Division One university setup in uh, back in California. So that's that was kind of my first crack at the profession. Uh, from there, I sort of worked within university and high school levels for about five or six years at various capacities and and also different sports and not just football, which which at the time was a very, very good experience to kind of learn and, and, and understand what it takes to work with different levels of players and, and, and sports. And then how does all of that apply to football, which was my main sport growing up and also a sport that I continue to be interested in. Uh, sort of after that, I transitioned into... Major League Soccer with Atlanta United, which was back in 2018, if I remember correctly, where I started uh, with the club initially as an assistant sports scientist. And I spent probably the first six months of my role kind of helping the first team, the reserves and the academy. And, you know, I learned from some brilliant people down there at the time. And and after the 2018 MLS uh, championship, that I was fortunate enough to be part of. We sort of had a shift in the structure and, uh, and the staff, and I I was given the task of becoming the head of sort of academy sports science, if you will, for the Atlanta United's uh, youth uh, football structure. And I spent the next two years working uh, with the club on that aspect and then in the youth development side of things. And then that role sort of came to an end back in 2020. And uh, shortly after that, I started my current role at the uh, Hoiko Football Club in Helsinki with our uh, women's professional team. Uh, and I've been here since January. Yeah, that's a, sh- a short summary. 
No, that's great. And, and we've just been talking just before we started recording about the extremes in, in weather over there. So I'm guessing that that's a big influence on, on what you do, extreme extreme winters, but also you've just been mentioning the, the temperatures today. So, um, yeah, I suppose that's a big part of, of your preparation, isn't it, with the, the climate out there? Yeah, I guess it's also part of my luck. Uh, my first uh, time ever in Finland or Helsinki specifically, that I've had the coldest winter with the most snow and I've also had the hottest summer <laughs> with the highest temperatures. So it's been an interesting uh, adjustment period. I mean, coming from California, which is usually almost sunny, but it's still quite warm here for sure. Yeah, brilliant. And on the, in the role at uh, Atlanta, in terms of when you first went into the club, was it was it like a clean slate? Was it a program that you had to design from scratch or was there something in place? Yeah, at the time, probably the first six months, it was somewhat of a clean slate in regards to there wasn't much direction in, in terms of what was needed from me. So I was kind of there to help anyone and that that included the first team staff the reserves team staff and also the academy which was great for me because uh, at the time uh, Tata Martino was the head coach and to kind of be around that and be able to like assist and kind of see what they do and learn from that gives you a very good uh, learning environment to to take away from and also be able to implement that within the rest of the players within the club structure which uh was a fantastic experience. But then when I transitioned into the academy setup, it was pretty much a clean slate. And I was given the task to put in processes and, and basically from every sports science SNC aspect that I could possibly think of, uh, obviously given the resources and everything. So that was basically my task for the next two years that I was there to put in structures in place and and, and make the the operation as smooth as it could possibly be. And what was the initial focuses for you? Because I think this is quite interesting when people talk about their first approach, maybe the non-negotiables or whatever you want to call it. What yeah. what was the initial focus for you going into that position? Yeah, I think the initial focus was probably identifying, okay, what is the identity of the academy? How do we want to play? But then how does that translate into a long-term athletic development plan? Because for me, that's probably the most non-negotiable aspect of it. And then having a framework that you can work off of, and it doesn't have to be rigid and it doesn't have to be by the book, if you will, all the time, because I know there's a lot of debate within the literature about different LTAD models and what's good and what's not good. But I think at the end of the day, having some sort of framework that you can kind of identify yourself with and then also build from is probably the most important element and then i think secondary to that is because you work with such a large number of coaches within an academy setup you have to have some sort of planning or per slash periodization strategies that you kind of utilize and that would keep everybody happy to a degree and would have everybody on the same sort of wavelength in terms of planning and, and designing sessions and things like that. So then I think those two are probably the most important aspects. And then you try to fill in the gaps from there as much as you possibly can. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and we said at the start that we're going to talk around periodization and I know there's so much stuff out there about, about periodization and obviously the different, the different approaches, the different models that are out there. And I'm sure many people, I've used different types. They've um, been exposed to different types, but I thought it would be really good to tap into your experience um, and some of the approaches that you've used and also what, have, what has influenced the decision on certain approaches. So just mm. initially, maybe just covering some of the different models that you've used um, and then we'll go into the reasons why that you, that you chose those and what influenced it. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think a lot of us in, in, in this field specifically, we come from a background of periodizing the biomotor abilities and like, you know, working within the gym environment and then on the pitch and off the ball mostly. And we kind of 
our way of thinking revolves around periodizing the physical aspect and physical aspect only. But I think the more, you know, football grows and then the more people realize that that sort of one dimensional approach doesn't really cut it anymore. And it's only one piece of the puzzle. Then you start to realize that then you have to find ways to work with the rest of the coaching staff and then, and make sure the demands of the team and, and what they require is met first. And then you, you try to work backwards from there and see where you can, you know, make improvements and add whatever you, uh, you possibly can, if that makes sense. But uh, I think to answer your question, obviously, like you said, there's, there's very many different methods, uh, you know, the traditional periodization methodologies and also more of the recent trends or not so much trends, but also idea, ideas that have become uh, commonplace in football, you know, such as the Raymond Berheim periodization model that's that's very very popular as we know within the coaching community uh, because it's quite simple to understand and implement uh, for somebody that doesn't necessarily have a background in, in sports science and uh, and secondary to that and probably less uh, common is the tactical periodization model that uh, that is gaining popularity even though it's been around for quite a long time and but now it's getting to multiple countries and, and, and multiple levels, whether that's youth development and also professional sports. Uh, for me, I think the tactical periodization model is probably the most in-depth and the most, uh, the one that makes the most sense to implement within a footballing structure, even though there is no scientific literature backing the entirety of the, of the model. But the rationale and the way it gets implemented, I think it goes very well with the coaches because it allows them to basically implement the game model and the style of play that they want to implement with their team and their squad. And, and I think for me, that's, that's a model we can work with. And that's a model I personally try to utilize in a sort of late, uh, late youth development stages of an academy setup and also within a professional environment because... It allows you to specifically come up with a list of uh, main principles that is related to your game model. Of course, that's the coach's job, but we, we, we learn from that because we also can adapt our physical aspect of that. And from there, then you can fill in the gaps. If, you know, if a style of play and if a game model is, is set in a certain manner by the head coach, and the physical model that you're trying to implement doesn't match that or doesn't uh, act as a supplementary methodology, then the two may not work well together. So I think the, you, the, our job at the end of the day will have to be complementing and supplementing what the coaches want. And I think the tactical periodization model is probably the only one that I can think of that has created the platform for, for the two to work together if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. And and I suppose that's when we also have to remind ourselves that we are support coaches or a support system for the manager or, or the head coach, don't we? Because like you say, if there is going to be that clash of approaches, we know we're not going to get the most out of what we're doing. Yeah. So that is when we do have to sort of be able to Maybe, maybe it's to do with ego or whatever it is, but we have to re-look re at our approach and make sure that it fits in line with, with what the coach is setting, don't we? No, no, absolutely. I think, and it's a, it's a humbling lesson, right? Like a lot of us, you know, it, it's football is a business of egos, in my opinion, and that's at every single level that you can possibly think of, uh, if it's under 12s all the way up to senior level, you know? So it's, and then it's quite fine. I think that's, that's also how you learn because then, you know, certain things work better than others and you have to find ways to make it work for your environment. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think, even the coaches and certainly in my experience is that they, they realize that you can have a model and you can have a methodology such as tactical periodization, but you also have to understand if that, if that model can fully be implemented within your club and your, whether it's national team or club level. And that is very much dictated by the, by the squad of the players you have, 
by the you know level of the play, by the culture of the club, and and the resources that kind of surrounds everything together. And you know, we can discuss the most in depth and the most brilliant uh, tactical periodization model with the with the most detailed game model plan with principles, sub principles, and so on and so forth. But when you look at certainly from my experience, some of the players can't even execute some basic elements of the game, then can you really truly implement the f- like a tactical periodization in its true sense? Yeah. Or, or do you start to shift to more of a hybrid method where you kind of pick and choose like what fits in your system from different methods? Yeah. And if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that's the real art of um, a coach or sports scientist, isn't it? To be able to understand each system to the point where you know how to manipulate your approach on who you're working with. And not, like you said, not just who, because I was going to talk about some of the influences or some of the things that influence your decision on what approach you take. And I know you've mentioned a few of them there. But um, yeah, when you've got a, a a, tight, a certain squad in front of you or you've got certain restrictions in place like that's when mm-hmm. you have to sort of delve into your toolbox isn't it and and then try and find that like you said that the hybrid approach or however you're going to manipulate it to get the most out of your approach no absolutely and I, and I think it all it all comes down to what you have available what are, what are the tools you have, you have that you can work with and and what is the coach wanting to achieve and accomplish. And I can give you a, a lot of examples, for example, like preseason, right? And there's a lot of debate on like how you should approach it and what is a good loading pattern. And like, you know, if it's six weeks versus four weeks versus 13 weeks in Scandinavia. So there's all these like arguments on what is a good way, right? So if you if you look at, for example, on the topic of tactical periodization, they the, the ideas behind it suggest that you have one introductory week in preseason and then starting week two, you're straight into the model and you have to like implement every element to the T and that's how you do it until end of the season. In reality, can you really do that in an environment where you're maybe given six weeks and your players have come off a break and most of them haven't done much? And, and then you look at the, the variance between your veteran players versus your you know, younger players that are part of the squad and the players that maybe are coming from different backgrounds. Can you make that happen in, in, a, in a span of four to six weeks where all of those players are on the same wavelength? Mm. Yes, of course, there's places that do that, but some places that that's just not a reality. So then if, if, if a certain day within the, your microcycle says that you need to be doing, working on your soft principles and it's, building out of the back, for example, and, and how you do that. And then your players are expected to complete a passing drill as the, as the first sort of component of, the, component, component of the session. And they show up and the passing is not great. Yeah. But you're so adamant about doing it because it's directly related to your game model. So what do you do at that point? You know, do you change it? Do you stick with it? And then maybe have a reflection that the next time, okay, maybe you need to have a simpler passing pattern where it has nothing to do with your game model, but it's specific enough to the sport where you kind of get what you want out of that to improve the quality and the decision-making of that and then and then shift the gears back to your, you know, main principles and sub-principles, if that makes sense. I think this crosses and over I- to a, a lot of approaches, doesn't it? And I'm thinking more like strength-based now, that if we want a player to be, say, hitting a certain um, weight or percentage of body weight on an exercise, but they've never done that exercise before or their, their level on that exercise, their training age is really low, we're not just going to suddenly load the bar up and say, this is where we want you to be, is it? And that, I suppose that's the equivalent to um, what we're saying in terms of periodization. If, it, Like you said, if the if you're trying to run a drill and it, you're not getting the desired effects and it's not at the intent, intensity and the technical level isn't there, it needs adapting, doesn't it, to get to get the players up to speed? 100%. I think there's so much like overlapping uh, and, and similarities between 
the you know the strength based stuff and then what what happens on a football pitch and not necessarily like in the same way but the ideas and the and the the thought process behind it I think there's a lot of overlap and yeah you know and and then it's the same thing and it, it like one simple example it's this whole idea of block periodization and how you know useful it is in a strength training environment versus in a football environment and and I think there's some merit to it. And then as, you know, I think the coaches really think on a, mic- on a microcycle level and justifiably so because it's all dependent on the results and, and things like that. But how much, how much do they actually think about the long term and what implications the current microcycle has on the next one and the next one and the, and then the one after that, right? So yeah. then can we influence that decision with a little bit of maybe quote unquote block periodization model where we we do try to plan it in maybe four weeks or five weeks or six weeks at a time where certain elements carries over and then you see that adaptation from a physical standpoint but also technical tactical standpoint and not just uh what happens this week and then we forget about it the following week because we don't need to do that anymore yeah yeah, yeah. And uh, this is something I spoke to Tom Little about actually ages ago, um, who's at Preston, because he was speaking about like managing the microcycle and he spoke so much about planning the microcycle, but it's got to be so flexible because of how football, everyone who works in football knows that things change like that. Like whether it's games, like you said, results can influence it. Maybe it's facilities or just logistics of getting people into certain places. Like we know there's loads of things that happen. But in terms of your approach, would you plan, say, would you plan like a macro cycle or would you have just like a, a rough idea of where you want to get to at certain points and then focus on the micro cycle? So I'm trying to think about coaches now sitting down to maybe look at a season like what would you say in your, in your experience, like how in depth do you think they need to go looking longer term or do you need to focus, just have in mind with the kind of things you want to be achieving later on in the season, but then focusing on the short term because that's what you, you've got the control over. Yeah. I, I think if, if your preseason is, is long enough and that could be anywhere from six weeks to 12, 13 weeks and, in, in a scenario like that, I think there's it's very important to sit down and really like discuss what is the coach want to accomplish by end of week six or week 13. And he could have a detailed plan of like how he, you know, periodizes his principles and things like that. But then I think there has to be a discussion of, okay, what implications is that going to have on the physical element? Because we can't just keep increasing load forever until 13 weeks later and expect everything to go well right so i think you there's a constant battle of educate educating the coaches to make you know make sure they realize that there has to be periods where you have to deload and you have to decrease what you expect from the players to let them recover so then they can go again and do it for another few weeks uh but i think once you transition into in season, and of course that's very much dependent on your, you know, fixture congestion and, and your travels and things like that. But assuming you only play one week, one game a week, then I think you can potentially look to plan maybe four weeks ahead of time. And not saying that you know you have to have a deload at the fourth week, but I think you can you can have certain elements. So for example, if you do follow the tactical periodization and you're your Tuesdays are, you know, generally speaking, small uh, dimensions and smaller sides, and your Wednesdays or your match day minus three are larger dimensions. Then, are there specific exercises that that the coach really, really likes and he keeps using? And then, can you periodize that in a way that's progressive and that allows the players to improve and that you know, physically, tactically, technically, whatever? And then you have like almost a block of that, right? And then you can sort of discuss okay what is next what does he want to achieve next and then can you do the same thing with this other things that he wants to achieve if that yeah. makes any sense if you're not already a member of our online community i suggest you go and give it a try so you can get check out a free month on our community by going to footballfitfed.com click the community tab and sign up there and it'll give you one month free 
on the community to check out what it's all about. So we've got numerous webinars and presentations available to watch back on demand on the community from numerous practitioners and topics across uh, sports science, strength conditioning and football fitness. So you can go and check all those out. We also have a number of different partner discounts available for our members. Um, and like I've mentioned a few times in previous podcasts, we have got an upgrade coming very soon on the community, which I'm really excited about, um, which is going to take the whole platform to the next level. So there's incredible some incredible content on there already, but this is going to make it even better. So make sure you go and check it out. Go and grab your free month footballfitfed.com click the community sign up there after that free month it is only £4.99 per month if you remain a member so if you're not already a member go and check it out go and check out that free month here's part two of the podcast with Norbert yeah no definitely have you got like a specific example and obviously without naming names or clubs or anything like that is there any anything that jumps out for you on that just to give a little bit more detail around that because I think it's a great point I'm just trying to think if there's anything specific that you you could maybe give an example on in regards to the that long-term short-term planning yeah 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 i I can use an example for example for us like we use match day minus uh four we have a generally our main principles and it's a large-sided theme which there's a lot of, you know, attacking transition moments, you know, in a, in a larger field size. But we usually do play some sort of medium to large sided game, depending on our, our player availability for the day. And we've, we've, we've had blocks of that where it's been sort of somewhere from 8v8 to maybe 10v10 plus goalkeepers. And then I've sort of identified what are some relative pitch areas that, we can use for that specific number that that could potentially uh, expose these players to high intensity running, potentially some sprint distance, some uh, high intensity actions where they really get to go. But obviously, that is very much dictated by how the session is, how that drill is run by the coach. Because if there's a lot of stoppages and if there's not a lot of you know ball in play, then the intensity could be very, very low. So then it, that plan kind of goes out the window. But assuming all those factors are kind of discussed and in place, then you can you can look to increase uh, the amount of you know sets and, and, and the duration of the sets across the weeks until you get the desired effect uh, in relation to potentially what you would do in a game. So, you know, if, for example, our effective uh ball in play time is about 55 minutes i believe so then we 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 try to like start at a lower end maybe uh 20 minutes or maybe even less than maybe 15 minutes and then we'd start somewhere from two sets of seven minute games with a minute or two in between rest and then we build that across the weeks and then obviously i try to use the data to see if how effective has that been in 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 getting what we want out of these players in relation to to the game yeah. and so on and so forth yeah yeah cool and obviously using data and stuff is a is a whole different topic because we could go into that and probably do a whole different podcast on it but um, <laughs> no I, I fully i fully agree um the other thing i was going to say in terms of a, an example you said about maybe a manager having um a certain drill or uh, something in mind that they want to try and implement into into the program and then you've mm-hmm. got to obviously then try and fit it in, haven't you? And make sure you're getting the most out of that approach. Can you give an example of that as well? Yeah. Uh, for example, like here in Finland, they're, they're used, the, the, the culture is influenced by this uh, methodology called Econo Method, which is a Spanish school of thought in regards to how they, they design sessions and how they train. And, and part of that is this idea of waves where, where, a lot of it is like game-related scenarios, whether it's defensive attacking or transition moments, where it's like almost done at three quarters of a pitch size, where you know it's usually at 20, 25 minute blocks where they try to implement some idea within that. So what we've kind of looked to achieve with that, uh, you know, our head coach, for example, he, he really, really likes that style of uh, training. So then sort of my thought process behind it was like, okay, uh, how can we make this that we also benefit physically and not just 
going through it 25 minutes with a lot of stop edges and not really getting much out of it, right? From a physical standpoint, that is. So then we identified, so I, you know, I asked the head coach, for example, specifically, like what is his ideal uh, chunk of time that he would want to implement within that 20 minute period. And he would, he would usually say, I would like to have, for example, a four minute block where the players kind of go and it's an intense actions, you know, back and forth. And then there's a rest period where I instruct them. And I was like, okay, so let's, let's see what is the, what is the length of the, of the field size for that drill? Can we turn this into potentially like a scenario where the players are exposed to an extensive sort of speed endurance maintenance or, or production scenario where, you know, you make a recommendation that, okay, for example, if you're looking for extensive actions, then maybe you the maximum length of time that you allow, allow the, the play to go on would be around maybe 30 seconds. And then you give them maybe two times that as a recovery. And for example, 60 seconds where you get to instruct the players and then you go again. And then that kind of suffices both the physical and also the tactical, technical aspect that the coach is looking. And obviously within that, then there's been a ton of literature coming out from work, work of Paul Bradley with regards to the whole high intensity movement profile and the con contextualization of what the players do to make it meaningful for them as well as the coaches. So and that's another sort of area that we started doing a lot more and more of and, and you know, adding elements of, you know, recovery run and running in behind and things like that within that scenario. And that almost makes the coaches smile and then that they're like, yeah, I can, I like that idea. So let's, let's try to implement that within my game model. Yeah. That, that's yeah, where, did I yeah, that's where the uh, specificity comes into play, isn't it? And that's why coaches love that because it becomes very visual, doesn't it? Like you can see the game happening in, in training essentially then. And yeah, Paul does some amazing work. And um, if anyone's not seen the work that Paul puts out, they need to go and check it out because yeah, it's it's brilliant. And I think that example, obviously there's, there's loads of different examples similar to that, isn't it? And how you can just adapt a drill, but that was, that was perfect just because it gives people that mindset on, Oh, I've not, I'm not drastically changing what we're doing. Cause we all know that if you go into a coach and you say, no, we're not doing that, then that's not going to happen. Like, they're going to do it regardless. So you, you have to have the skill as a practitioner, don't you, to go in and get what you both want out of it because we've, we've, we've got the same goal at the end of it. No, 100%. And, I, and I've, I used to be very hard-headed and, and, and say, oh, the workload has to be this way and you have to accomplish it doing top-ups and doing this and that. But I've shifted so far away from that then it's almost like, I've evolved into being like a third assistant coach where I listen and I, you know, observe what, what are they thinking? What is the reasoning behind this drill and exercise that they want to do? And okay, how can I make a suggestion that would have an underlying physical element to that? And I've become a huge supporter and believer in, in accomplishing all of your sort of physical markers, if you will, through the training sessions and minimizing how much you do off of that. Of course, we have to do that to develop certain elements because you can't always achieve that. But, but I think the more sort of specific it becomes to the, to the style and to what the coaches want, I think the happier everybody is. And, 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 and the same goes with the players and not just the coaching staff because it, <laughs> the number of times I've, you know, had to deal with players, you know, they're like, Oh, we're running again. Oh, we're doing this again. And it's like, okay, can you make, five extra recovery runs today so then we're both happy and then you don't have to do anything extra and they're yeah. like yeah i can do that and then boom <laughs> yeah because coaches and players they want to play don't they that's that's what they're there for so if you can get what you want out of it then obviously it it pleases everyone doesn't it but there's a real skill in that isn't there and i, I love the idea of the sort of third assistant coach because taking that viewpoint removes the fact of like old school where you had a, a fitness coach and a technical coach, like, and they, yeah. they've just got two different views and you look after the fitness, you look after the football. That's not the case, is it? We've got to be, there's, there's got to be um, that link between, isn't there? And, and, and obviously we can talk about relationships and um, between coaches and, and obviously that 
that is really important, isn't it? But what everything you've spoke about comes off the back of having that relationship and then being adaptable within the approach. No, I couldn't have said it better. I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think we will still continue to be responsible for the physical aspect and the fitness and all of that stuff. But the more you speak the language of the coaches, the more they trust you and the more they come to you as a, almost like an advisor and we're a mm. third assistant or whatever, right? Then even like it's not our job to be the technical tactical coach, but if we increase our knowledge level on that front, then we can have more influence and we can get more buying from them and, and, and alter decisions if there's a need for that, right? And, and there's this all, uh, I guess, rivalry between the coaches and like the, you know, the traditional SNC fitness coach coming in and they're like, can you even kick a ball? Like that was <laughs> yeah. like my, my first interaction here in, 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 in the team. It was like, oh, can you even kick a ball? And then they, they, they saw me doing a few return to play sessions. They're like, oh, okay. And then yeah. it, it almost like built that relationship without me saying anything, which was, which is not the greatest thing, but like it makes you laugh and makes you realize maybe the value of really knowing the sport and like kind of walking the walk as well as talking it. So I think that's a, it's a great point. Cause I always, I always hear people speaking about working in different sports. And I was trying to think to myself, like if I went into a sport that I didn't know anything about, I didn't know anything about the culture. I just feel like it would take me so long to get, get used to it and sort of be able to be as impactful as as working in a sport like football or soccer that, that I know more about. It's, it's just interesting, isn't it? And I, I think the other point I was going to make on what you were talking about there with maximising football practice is that it does exactly that. Like where, if people are listening, maybe working towards the lower levels of football – and you've not got much time with players. We've not all got the luxuries of spending every every second with players like some clubs have. It allows you all to get what you want out of the sessions, doesn't it? Without adding loads of time on that you don't have. No, hundred percent. Like, I think with the exception of maybe very few elite clubs that do have the luxury of having unlimited resources and things like that majority of the clubs even even at high leagues and don't have the resources and the time or the resources are shared amongst you know different divisions you know academy men's women's etc etc so then you have to find ways to make it work because yeah. if you keep you know principles are a few but methods are many and there's certainly many ways to skin a cat and if you can identify different ways of doing that then you, i think you'll be in much better place and, and and solve more problems as opposed to causing them if that makes any sense yeah and no, no go on mate yeah, so, no no and and i think uh at the end of the day like establishing certain frameworks and and ideas that you really believe in and and finding the links between that and what the rest of the staff or the players expect of you i think that's where that fine and that relationship aspect kind of gets more gelled and bonded, if you will. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I was going to ask as well, you referenced it before in terms of the work, um, obviously trying to maximise football practice, trying to get as much out we can um, of the practices, but there being a small element of work that needs to then be done away from the pitch. So what do you feel like some of the biggest... Um, Maybe some of the biggest aspects of physical performance that can be affected away from the pitch rather than including it or adapting the practice to try and get the most out of it. Yeah, I think that probably the biggest one is the gym or the weight room and what happens from a strength and power development standpoint, which we know is very, very important in regards to both obviously improving performance, but more importantly, mitigating some risks of injury. So I think that's where the fine line is and how much you can push and pull in, in that environment. And, you know, I think I've, I've certainly come to a place where I'm more about doing the, what is the term I'm looking for? Like the biggest bang for your buck with the least amount of uh, exercises and, and things like yeah. that. And you don't, you, you know, I would love to have a 90 minute weigh room session two or three times a week, but that's just never going to happen given how many games players play. So then yeah. can you identify 
areas of improvement for each individual player within the squad in an ideal scenario, then you kind of make plans according to that and then find ways to almost like microdose it and then and find the minimum effective dose for those for that specific player and then find ways to implement that. And this almost becomes this cycle of, I think, Mladen Jovanovic uses the agile periodization where it's like short-term, like iterative planning and testing and things like that, where it like constantly evolves and it becomes less rigid. So then you're, you, you move the needle in the, in the right direction, if you will. And you get less hung up on the idea of like, I, it might block of match strength this month didn't pan out because of the practices running over by 30, 40 minutes each day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so true, isn't it? Cause if, if we look at uh, an S and C program, a football S and C program, and we, we take that sort of block periodization approach, then we know that in season, there's going to be th- things that crop up um, fatigue, fixture congestion, like have probably been a couple from the, the, this season that um, has just happened and taking into account the Euros and everything else, like we can have that plan. Again, it comes down to, it comes down to being adaptable within the plan, doesn't it? And, and knowing what you're trying to get. And, and like we said, the, whether it's the low hanging fruits, or the, the non-negotiables, whatever we want to phrase it, like what we want to try and hit with the player. So if we do have a 20 minute, a 15 minute session, or 15 minute free time, we know we're going for X, Y, and Z. They're, they're the priorities. Yeah, 100%. Uh, it's like you said, I think identifying what is the most important uh, thing from a physical standpoint. And then obviously from there, how much time you have in the day, in the week, in the month. Can you plan it long term without any interruption? Great, then do that. If not, then you, ha- you have to have almost contingency plans yeah. put in place for everything because uh, as the great Mike Tyson said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face I love that's that. football <laughs> that's football every single day of the week so you know you just have to be prepared for everything 100% no mate this has been this has been quality have you got anything else to add in terms of uh, periodization because I feel like we've covered most of what we were going to talk about in terms of what influences it um We've, we've spoke about how flexible we need to be within the approach and then obviously some of the factors that you feel like we can impact away from the pitch. But was there anything else that you, you feel like that we need to cover on it? Uh, I think one thing from experience, I would say, is the not valuing the player feedback enough probably and being so caught up on like, for example, if this is a five-day-a-week training schedule, we're doing it regardless of what the players are thinking, feeling, you know, you know, you can monitor fatigue and all of that all you want. But I think that the conversation and the verbal feedback you get from the players is probably the most valuable in that end. And I think having the flexibility and being okay with having an extra day off and manipulating your training because you deep down, you know, that's going to give them the, the players that little bit of psychological and mental boost that when they do come in, they're going to go an extra uh, mile for you because you gave them a day off. It's yeah. almost finding that balance. And, and that certainly has been a learning curve for me as well, because I'm always like, oh, we need to train, we need to train. And then players can't cope. And then you all of a sudden are like, all right, then you have to start to listen and find that, you know, what fits them as opposed to what fits you or the coach. Yeah, that's another great point. And again, it comes down to relationship. We spoke about relationship between you and a head coach, but then you and a and the players is equally as is important isn't it and knowing the players and and if they're coming to you and saying um that that they're feeling fatigued or they they don't feel like they should be doing certain work on certain days like again it's just that being adaptable isn't it and having that that tools those tools in the toolbox to adapt your approach and and um essentially meet meet each other halfway isn't it and get the most out of it yeah 100 percent. i think the end of the day like we're not robots and we certainly don't work with robots so it's having that you know that feel for it you know sometimes um, we like to be science-based and i love it and and i don't want to move away from it but you have to understand that human element and then to to get that translated into real world practice takes takes an art if you will and then it it 
it's sometimes you have to bend the rules and sometimes you have to a little bit forget about the science because that's the reality of it. And they don't, they're not rats. They're not lab rats where they respond to a certain stimulus in a controlled fashion. Right. So then you have to be flexible with that as well. I think that's something you experience more and more as you go through your career as well, isn't it? That you, that, that we, not that we get away from the science because that's not the case, is it? But you learn how to adapt things a little bit more and you learn that, yeah, we are, we are dealing with humans and, and not every set of players or not every player is the same. So um, yeah, that, that's a great point. No, but we'll move on to um, some of the questions we finished the podcast with now. So yeah. The first one being, who are some of the biggest influences on your career so far? That's a, it's a long list, probably, but I'll try to make it a bit small. I think probably the two most people that I would give a lot of credit to is a gentleman called, called Ferzad Jalivant and a gentleman named Jeff Krelink. These are the two people that I met at the very beginning of my journey, and they they saw something in me and they believed in me and they certainly gave me my first shots, whether it was an internship or just a conversation and a chat. I think they inspired me so much to continue and push on and move forward in my career. So I think them two are probably the most influential and some of other people are uh, Dr. Greg Half and Dr. Sophia Nymphius and Dr. Dan Baker, which I got to meet all of them in uh, when I did my master's down in Australia. So those people are, world-class practitioners and researchers that I got to learn from. And that experience is certainly not replaceable. And over the recent years, uh, James Malone, brilliant guy. I, I got connected with him and I've learned so much from him. So that's another person I would definitely say that you should probably have on your podcast. Yeah, I was just thinking that when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then obviously I've worked, I've had the pleasure of working with a ton of brilliant staff back in Atlanta uh, and also here in, in Helsinki. So a shout out to them as well. Yeah, brilliant. I know it's hard to narrow it down, but yeah, some some amazing names in there. Um, next one, what would you say your biggest strength is as a practitioner? <laughs> My uh, least favorite question. <laughs> this is my favorite. You say this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would. I've you know I've come up with this sentence in my head for a while now. I think I'm a good generalist in an age of specialization, where I've had to cover so many fronts for so many years that I've become really good at being able to do that. And uh, as much as I would like to specialize in certain things, but that's not always the reality of elite sports. So I think that's probably my strength. I love that. That's a great quote. <laughs> awesome. Um, and then just just finally, I always like to ask people about CPD or or how you're doing your continual learning at the moment, whether it's uh, whether you're able to get on courses or uh, whether it's webinars, podcasts. Is there anything that sort of stood out for you that you might have done recently? Um, I always think this is quite a nice time just to divert coaches' attentions to certain things that you've done or you feel like you're taking the most from. Uh, yeah, I mean, I always keep my eyes out for whatever, you know, gets posted on social media. I think it's great for these sort of things. And uh, some of the, the two webinars I've done recently was the Sport Trail Football Science Conference. Uh, that was, I thought it was very well put together and the, the lineup of speakers was brilliant. So I, that was a really, really good learning opportunity and for almost no cost at all for what they provided you with. And then the second one was a free webinar by uh, the GPEX, GPS company uh, yeah. from Italy. And they had uh, uh, JB Maureen on uh, speed and acceleration profiling, which I thought was very, very good. Uh, so those are the two I've done recently. And of course, like most people in the field, I, you know, I keep, try to keep up with research and podcasts and books and things of that nature as well. So, yeah. 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 That's why, that's why I keep, like to keep it broad on that. Cause I know people cover a lot of different things in terms of podcasts or webinars and research and stuff. So um, now I think it's always nice to, to get where you've focused your attention recently um, no, but I really appreciate you coming on, mate. This has been this has been superb to to speak to you and, and talk through what we've gone through. 
just in terms of like diverting people to social media, if they want to, if they want to connect, if they want to um, ask any questions or anything, would you, where would you direct them? And also do you want to give your uh, Twitter handle or whatever you, wherever you want us to send them? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I try to respond as much as possible on, on Twitter and LinkedIn. So you can find me at, on LinkedIn, uh, Norbert Panusi. Uh, I think if you type that, it probably come. I'm the only one named <laughs> with that last name, probably. So it'll be an easy find. Uh, and then Twitter is uh, at coach underscore Norb, which is N-O-R-B, in the first few letters of my first name. So um, I'll send that across to you so you can attach it in case people couldn't get through my thick accent so <laughs> <laughs> no brilliant no i encourage people to obviously reach out with with all guests like i think it's great to have conversations and uh especially around periodization i think you've gave some great practical examples of how you've um manipulated your approach and sort of created your approach in different scenarios so i really appreciate you being open with that um, and i hope people have taken plenty from it yeah absolutely ben Thank you for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. No problem, mate. And let's stay in touch. 100%. Huge thank you to Norbert for giving up his time and coming on the podcast. I think there was some great information in this one. It was great to chat with him. Um, I think some of the takeaways for me, the early takeaway was when, uh, it sounds quite an obvious one, but I think it's an important one when he said about working back from the game plan or the game model and that that's how we're creating the approach that we take. I think that was a really important point. He spoke about meeting the demands of the team as well um, in that approach. So these are all factors around deciding which periodization plan to go with. Um, he spoke about ad adapting coaches' drills. So if co a coach is adamant on getting a certain drill or approach into a practice, you having the skills of a practitioner to go in there and suggest um, certain ways of adapting it to try and get the most out of uh, what you want out of it as well as what they want out of it. I, I love the fact that you referenced that the third assistant coach because I think that sort of trans, transforms your mindset around being a S&C coach or a sports scientist or a physical performance coach and it just makes you respect that we are supporting the head coach or the manager and um, yeah, I just think that was a really interesting approach that he he said that he, he feels like he is the third assistant coach. Um, he also spoke about valuing player feedback, which I think is a really important thing because I think that we, we spoke about the relationship between us as a coach and, and the head coach, but the relationship between coaches and players is super, super important. Um, and it means that you can really optimise what you get out of each individual player as well. And then a great line from Norbert was when he's, I asked about his biggest skill or biggest strength as a practitioner. He said that he feels like he's a good generalist in an age of specialists, which I think was a great, great point. And some absolute gold in this one from Norbert. So big thank you, Norbert, if you're listening. Thank you for coming on, mate. I really appreciate the chat. And I hope everyone took loads from it. Please reach out and let us know what you did or give it a share on social media. And you can go and link up with Norbert either on uh, LinkedIn, just search his name, or on Twitter at coach underscore Norb, N-O-R-B. So hit him up on Twitter and let him know your feedback and give us a tag as well when you're sharing uh, the podcast too. As always, big thank you for everyone for their for your support. And if you've not already left us a review, please head over to iTunes, leave us a review and we'll speak to you again next week in episode 146.